This is RSA Radio. I'm Matthew Taylor. It does look as if we have reached the position where someone in their 20s now could be earning less in absolute terms than someone in their 20s 10 or 20 years ago, which is an extraordinary position to get into. Sometimes a book treats a contemporary issue so well it hits the moment in a way that captures the public conversation. It propels an issue to the top of the agenda, changes the national conversation. It even alters the way in which people see the world. But where does the idea for a book like that come from? What's involved in writing it? And after the initial media excitement... What's its longer-term impact? I'm Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the RSA. This podcast is one in a series of interviews with authors of some of the most influential books in politics and social change that have been published in recent decades. Today, I'm joined by David Willits to talk about intergenerational inequality and his landmark book, The Pinch, How the Baby Boomers Stole Their Children's Future and Why They Should Give It Back. It's a book which crystallised the concern that young people today may be the first generation in history to have worse life chances than their parents. So, David, you were the MP for Haven't for 15 years before becoming Minister of State for Universities and Science in the coalition government after the general election in 2010. And that was the same year the pinch was published. So when did you first have the idea to write the book? Well, the idea of the book came partly from personal experience and partly from professional experience. Personally, it was our two kids getting older, getting into their late teens, into their 20s, and my wife and I saying, how on earth are our kids ever going to get started on the housing ladder? It was as simple as that, the kind of anxiety that many parents have, especially all around London and the South East. And then in my political career, in the long years in the shadow cabinet from 1997 to 2010... I had spent most of the time shadowing either pensions or education. And that had led me to think about, you know, what kind of contract promise do we make to pensioners and what kind of obligation do we have to kids? And I think the fact that I'd spent 10 years, really, in those two areas of policy led me to start writing it in 2007. It took about three years because I was busy. I was in the shadow cabinet. And I wrote it through 2007, 2008 into 2009, Yes, and then it was published at the beginning of 2010, just before the election. What kind of writer are you? Do you, do you, are you somebody who kind of goes away for several weeks and gets immersed in it, or do you do a couple of hours every night? Or What's your kind of writing process? I have two kind of ways I get a book written. One of the opportunities in politics is a long summer break, and so I do try to take five or six weeks through August when you can immerse yourself in a book and really wrestle with it. And then also, I'm quite an early riser, and as I get older, I wake up earlier, and there's this marvellous quiet time between kind of 5.30 or 6 and 8.30 or so when you can also make progress. So it's some combination of early morning and then the long recess breaks. Yeah, I know that early morning feeling when you, you, you're ambivalent because you kind of rather like to lie in bed longer, but you think, no, I've got a couple of hours now. Exactly. A, a stiff cup of coffee and I can get on with something interesting. Exactly. So were there any moments in the writing of the book where you had kind of doubt, where you felt, I'm not sure of my thesis, or, or once you'd set sail, did you absolutely know this was the book you were going to write and it was just the kind of the unfolding of it? No, I did have times when I doubted it. And in a way, it was 
was both the opportunity and the frustration with the book. When I looked at books about post-war Britain, there were hundreds of books about Britain's division by ethnicity or gender or class, but I hadn't really found a single book that looked at Britain from the point of view of different generations. So I thought it was... Uh, an unusual, fresh argument in Britain. Of course, it, it was an argument that had already been running elsewhere, both on the continent and in the US. But that meant that even when you looked into social statistics, there were a lot of statistics where you could access them by broken down in the other ways, by gender or whatever. But getting cohort data was much harder then, 10 years ago. I think as that debate has gone into the foreground of politics, one of the good things that's happened is there's more reliable statistics and much more data collected on the circumstances of different age groups than there was then. The result was, although as I looked around, I thought there was data that sustained the argument, the book, as it was written 10 years ago, had a weaker empirical base than you could offer now. But I think, I think fortunately, I would say most of the evidence that's come in has tended to confirm the argument. But I was taking a bit of a fly then, 10 years ago. I mean, saving your blushes, it is, it is a marvellous book. I mean, I've just reread it. And, and one of the things that's interesting about it is that I think, I suspect a lot of people who read about it at the time it was published or since would kind of say, yes, the, the pinch, it's a book about baby boomers and why young people looking forward aren't confident about the future and those kind of issues. But they wouldn't realise that it's got a really interesting chapter about the social history of the family and its relationship to British character or quite a lot of stuff around... Uh, human character and neuroscience and behavioural economics. Is there an extent to which you use the book to kind of shoehorn quite a lot of things you wanted to talk about in? Yeah, I think that's a fair comment because in my 10 or 15 years in politics, I'd wrestled with a lot of these things and I hope thought about them a bit. And it it was an opportunity to organise the material But you don't just want to sort of throw in front of people, here are random thoughts of mind about British society. You do need an organising principle, an argument. And the generational issue provided the core argument. And, of course, there was an underlying point as well, which is one of the reasons for my interest in the intergenerational issue, which is as society becomes more diverse, as people's values, cultures, religious beliefs become more divergent... What is it that you can appeal to in modern politics that passes the kind of Rawls test as an argument of public reason that people will respond to, uh, regardless of, for example, their religious beliefs? And I think that the resources of neuroscience, uh, game theory, uh, evolutionary biology, I think they are a resource that are very important nowadays when they may enable you to put arguments in a way that reaches out across a great wide range of people. I want to come back to that point about public reason later on. Let's just turn now to the book. Just remind us of what the core argument of the book is. Well, the core argument is, it basically comes in two parts. First of all, I assemble the evidence, such as it was then, that it looks as if the baby boomers, this big generation born between 1945 and 1965, have ended up with, for example, a very large amount of the wealth, housing wealth, pensions wealth, opportunities, and their children, the younger generation, smaller cohorts coming on behind them, have got less 
wealth and opportunity. Now, of course, to some extent, this is just the life cycle. You would expect the average 50-year-old to earn more than the average 30-year-old. So then have to disentangle that and unpack that and say, no, it's not just a life cycle effect. There is a cohort born between 45 and 65 that are doing better than other cohorts were at the same age. So that was the evidence. The second stage of the argument was to try to explain this because the conventional view amongst demographers was that being a big cohort was bad news. Mm. Being a big cohort meant you'd go through life travelling economy class, not business class. There'd be more competition in the jobs market. There'd be more competition for housing. So kind of the conventional view, insofar as people have thought about it, would be bad news for the baby boomers. It'd surely be far better to be born in a small cohort. And so the second argument is a kind of explanation saying, no, actually... In a modern democracy, with a lot of political decisions shaping the welfare state, and also in a modern market economy, with the consumer power that comes from being a big cohort, you might actually find that being a big cohort works to your advantage rather than your disadvantage. And so that was the explanation, uh, that being a big cohort had actually worked out well for the boomers rather than working out badly. It's interesting to me because I actually wrote a very short not very successful, but with my father about the declining birth rate. And then quite soon after that, the birth rate started to go up, which was rather confounding to us. In contrast, the evidence that has accumulated since you wrote The Pinch has confirmed your thesis. I would say so. And we're doing work on this now at the Resolution Foundation, where I'm chairing an intergenerational commission. And actually, I'm I'm turning my mind to a, a second edition of The Pinch, where I will be able to draw on 10 years more data. But I would say that when it comes to the distributional impact of the welfare state, it's pretty clear now that you know, benefits for pensioners are doing better than benefits for people of working age. When you look at the two big assets that we build up during our lives, um, pensions and houses, then the trends in the book are sadly have carried on and it's harder and harder for young people to get started on the housing ladder. In the labour market... The data here is contested, but it does look as if we have reached the position where someone in their 20s now could be earning less in absolute terms than someone in their 20s 10 or 20 years ago, which is an extraordinary position to get into. Now, that depends on before housing costs, after housing costs, that's a bit more complicated. But the overall picture, I think, is sadly pretty compelling that the arguments in the pinch... um, are turning out to be broadly sustained as our nation develops. Am I right in saying that the Resolution Foundation said that pensioners now are better off than people of working age? Is that Correct. Right? What we have, we've just, as part of the sort of working papers we have, which we are producing for the Intergenerational Commission, we did a particular analysis of this, which did indeed show that in the year 2000, the average working age household had an income about £70 a week higher than the average pensioner household. The crossover was in about 2011, and now on the 2015-16 data, the average pension household is £20 a week better off than the average working age household. So it is an extraordinary change. And of course, I should emphasise, I'm not against affluent pensioners. It's a good thing that pensioners are... The the problem of pensioner poverty, which dogged a lot of British post-war social policy, is much diminished. This This is basically a success. But... What it has left behind now is this growing problem of poverty amongst people of working age, which is a problem that particularly 
preoccupies us at, at Resolution Foundation. And it does mean that, I think, to some extent, the public debate lags behind the evidence. People still worry about pensioner poverty. And whilst there are some poor pensioners, we should be much more worried about poverty amongst younger age groups. And we tend in these debates to talk about income, but the disparities around wealth are even more pronounced, aren't they? Indeed. And I think for both pensions and for housing, it is absolutely clear what's happening. And for pensions and pension wealth, I see it as one of the most vivid examples of the thesis in the book because what happened for decades during the 1970s, 80s and 90s was successive governments of different political persuasions voted to make the company pension promise more generous and more gold-plated. So they voted for, and I was part of this, uh, for obligatory inflation protection, rights of people even if they left the company after a few years, better rights for widows or widowers, each one of which individually looked like a good thing. But it had the combined effect of making the company pension so expensive that companies have closed their pension schemes to new members. So we turned what was an ongoing part of the social contract into a once-off special offer for a generation that participated in these schemes. And then, to add insult to injury, as these pension schemes have got big deficits, workers are working to generate the revenues to plug the pension deficits. And indeed, a lot of the workers earning those revenues are younger workers who aren't even members of the pension schemes. And when at Resolution Foundation we we look at why pay has lagged behind productivity, one of the reasons is that an increasing part of the returns to labour are being taken in the form of higher contributions into pension schemes rather than actual pay. And that is one of the reasons it looks as if pay of people in their 20s is being held down. A bigger slug of the returns to labour are going into, into pension schemes they're not members of. That is, I think, a vivid example of the argument I develop in the book. Well, certainly, you know, reading the book again, it feels, as you say, even more relevant than when you wrote it. I want to look at some of the issues in the book in slightly more depth, sir. And, and I want to start with something which, which kind of made me smile a few times as I was reading the book. It felt to me as though you were wrestling with your attitude to the very concept of social justice. So, you know, you come from a right-of-centre tradition, and in that tradition, the notion of social justice is often seen as being rather problematic, um, philosophically problematic. You know, how would we define what justice is? But also problematic in that it gives a licence then to people like me on the left to want to manipulate society and distribute money in order to pursue this kind of ephemeral notion of justice. And in the book, it feels to me as, as though this is someone who wants to say, look, I, I don't really like that idea of social justice, but I do recognise there are problems about fairness in society. Aha! Intergenerational justice. That's a way in which I can talk about justice that doesn't force me out of my comfort zone. Yeah, well, I, I see what you're getting at there. And there, there is something in it. Look, I was, I was brought up with the kind of Hayek critique of social justice. And then the communitarian critique of Rawls, which said, how can you imagine a society in which we don't have a shared language or a shared culture? What is it to be behind this veil of ignorance? It's barely to be human. There is indeed a Tory strand, and I'm part of it, which was wary of these interpretations of the social contract. But you're right. I didn't then want to leave the social contract as the kind of exclusive property of the left. And I, so I thought, what... What sense would a, a Tory make of the social contract? And part of the clue came in the great Rawls book on the theory of justice when he's trying to imagine what we're like behind this 
veil of ignorance where I mean, we left pretty naked of anything that we might regard as any distinctive cultural history. Just to clarify, people who don't know, the argument that Rawls put together is what kind of society would you design if you had no idea what place in that society you would have? And from this, he concludes it would be a society that would be pretty equal and would only have inequalities if they raised up everybody's position. Is that broadly...? That's correct. And in, but indeed, in his experiment, basically, you can't really have a, la- a religion. It's not clear you can have a culture or a history... That's why it's exposed to the classic conservative critique of the social contract. He's asking us to, us to imagine life outside society, but that is inconceivable. However, even Rawls, as he sets up this, um, this kind of veil of ignorance behind which we have to decide on the contract, at one point, almost in passing, he just has a few paragraphs on it, he refers to the people making these contracts as heads of families. Now, which is partly already a slightly sort of retro way of describing it. And I suddenly realised he's packing a hell of a lot into that. As soon as he says that, then you are not just saying, what's going to be great for me? You are also, by implication, got to be thinking about your children and grandchildren. You suddenly are part of a chain of being and you're just one link in it. And so while he was willing to strip everything else away from us behind this veil, he wasn't willing to take that family connection away. And that, I thought, was an important clue. And then you put alongside that something that I'd wrestled with, you know, to turn to the more mundane in my day-to-day job, you know, shadowing pensions, shadow work and pension secretary. Um, and you kind of think, so what, what is a pension? And there was all these rather confused arguments about a funded pension, but really a, a pension, be it a funded pension or a state tax-based pension, is a way of staking a claim on future resources. Um, and there's a lovely essay by Samuelson about the pension where he, he says that paying a pension to someone older than yourself today is a means of ensuring that you have a pension when you are old. And what is at any point a, a, an exchange between one generation and the next can equally be thought of as a way in which we smooth our own income across the life cycle. And if you really are trying to get into this kind of social contract game, what is the original social contract? Why do we have society? I think the argument that it exists because we have long periods of dependency in childhood and perhaps in old age, and the purpose of exchanges with others at any one point of time is also to enable us to be sustained through the life cycle. That's what holds us together. I think that does help explain the function of the welfare state. It offers an account of the social contract which is a bit different from a kind of left-wing preoccupation with it so that rich people can give money to poor people. It's actually so that people in their middle age can transfer resources at any one point of time to people who are younger and people who are old. At the end of your life, to sort of stick with this rather schematic Mm. image, you might expect it all to have balanced out. And I find that quite a good intuitive way of explaining to people what a welfare date is, and which is not quite the same as kind of means-tested assistance for poor people. And, and I see that. And, and you know, in any kind of debate around social justice, there's kind of one strand of argument that says that the reason we should have a more just society is because it works, because societies that are more just are more successful in various ways. But there's another argument which says, well, you know, that may be true, but it's also a fundamental question here about what is fair. 
And in the book, you are, as well as saying, look, this is how the welfare state works and this is how things need to work, there is also, it seems to me, something which says this is our moral responsibility towards future... There is some abstract notion of justice here that we should engage with. Yeah, you're right. I don't feel at all uh, defensive about using the language of fairness. I think there should be fairness between the generations. And I think it's quite a deep-seated human instinct. I think it's, it's a... It's an appeal that people respond to. I think that politics have become rather impoverished by arguments about distribution between rich and poor, uh, classic on the left, arguments about economic efficiency, classic arguments on the right, and not much argument about are we as a society and through public policy offering a fair deal to the different generations. And there's a, there was some interesting evidence, for example, that people are less and less susceptible to appeals to ideology to shape how they vote. They are susceptible to appeals to long-term. They are susceptible to appeals to arguments about what we've inherited from previous generations and the obligation to pass it on to future generations. I'll come back to that question of what the public is willing to, to, to hear and see done in their name in a moment. But just to finish on this social justice question, I guess the other point is... Isn't it also true that this intergenerational issue can only be understood through the prism of social inequality in that this problem about how the baby boomers are consuming the future isn't really a problem if you're well off? Because actually well off younger generation people are getting their university fees paid by their parents. They are getting their uh, mortgage uh, down payment paid by their parents. It's once again, this problem of intergenerational justice is much, much worse if you're poor. I accept that. And, and, and look, it's, um, I think part of the kind of one of the other consequences of this argument is I think it offers a way into the issue of unfairness and inequality within a generation. However, I think where you're a bit kind of complacent in a way is that I can tell you middle class households in the southeast are worried about what's going to happen to their kids. The idea that you can if you're affluent you're just completely insulated from this. No, I think it is one of the other reasons why it, it works and strikes a chord with people as a, as a political argument is that even quite affluent people can you know, given the extraordinary increases you've seen in property prices, for example, around London and the South East, aren't at all clear how their kids are going to get started on the housing ladder. They aren't at all clear how their kids are going to have anything like the good company pensions that we've got. It has a wider constituency than right, just poor I, people. I get that now, but that takes me on to a kind of slightly different set of questions because the book that's been published since The Pinch, which it seems to me is almost like a kind of sister book of this, is Robert Putnam's book, Our Kids, the core thesis of that book, which in a way is quite a bleak book, actually, is that we seem to care more and more about our own children and less and less about other people's children. And having read that book, I saw that theme coming up in your own. So in a way, the way people are responding to this intergenerational challenge, this lack of opportunities for younger people is to say, OK, well, I will invest in my children, in their education, in helping them buy a mortgage or whatever. But they don't seem to be interested in other people's children. Help me with the bleakness of that diagnosis. (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, there is something in it. I kind of have some observations about that in the book. And I say it looks as if society as a whole is more generationally segregated than we were. Your neighbourhood tends to be people of broadly the same age. The, The business sector you work in tends to mean that you work alongside people of the same age. Manufacturing has got a lot of older people. You know, financial services has got younger people. 
And even this kind of stranger danger culture has meant that what historically might have been thought was more usual interaction between adults and kids people are more wary of. So there's less run-of-the-mill intergenerational contact. However, meanwhile, the family has changed in a different way. As families have got smaller, so we have fewer siblings or fewer extended families. And Britain and England never really had very large families. Instead, you have tall, thin kind of bamboo I'm going, to, I'm going to quote the book, Batches. Uh-huh. There's a wonderful line on page 132. Uh-huh. You say, the future is tall, thin families in a wide, flat world. Yeah, exactly. So the, the family is the play, has become a more important vehicle for intergeneration exchange. And actually, one of the good things that's happened in post-war Britain, I think relations between the generations within the family have by and large got better. The days of the kind of clash of parents and their teenage kids that we remember from the 60s, I think that's that by and large improved. So you've got the family doing more work as the intergenerational, delivering the intergenerational contract and the rest of society doing less. Now, I think that, again, I'm, I'm ultimately not a pessimist because I think, and I do do a hell of a lot of events and meetings around these themes, and I find people are very susceptible to these type of arguments and saying, look, you don't just have an obligation to do your own kids. Now, that's a completely admirable and natural instinct. It would be quite good if other people's kids had a decent chance in life, if they could afford a house as well. You want to live in a society where the younger generation in general um, have a fair deal, don't you? And, and so part of the reason for writing the book was I actually just think people weren't thinking much about generational consequences of what they were doing because, as I said, there was a dearth of analysis and argument about it. I think that's a, an interesting argument that in a sense, if we're trying to encourage politicians and the public to think long term and to think in a sense altruistically, it is better to appeal to their care for the young and the future generations than it is for perhaps for the poor of their own generation. I am going to come back to this question of what's happened since you wrote the book in terms of policy. But just before we do that, one of the other things that occurred to me about the book is that you know you and I have spent a lifetime in policy and politics and believing that the way a particular policy is written makes a difference. But yet there's a kind of deterministic (laughs) drumbeat running through this book. And in fact, I heard you make a radio programme, wonderful radio programme recently, also about the same issues. And listening to that, you kind of felt, well, really, the argument here is demography is fate. The poorest countries in the world are the youngest countries in the world. If you're an ageing population, then your your economy will become less dynamic. Help me see through the kind of deterministic element of this argument. Yeah, and there is, of course, a strand of demographers. The great Richard Eastlin famously uh, said, demography is destiny. And it is a very powerful structural force helping us understand economies and societies. And it's a kind of non-Marxist force. And if you ask me which what helps explain the 21st century better, demography or Marxism, I would say demography does. However, I'm not a, I'm not a complete determinist. And I think the... And indeed, I don't think I'd have written the book if I just thought it was an account of bleak, inevitable forces. It was an appeal to um, a concern that I thought people still had but wasn't being expressed and wasn't in the public debate as much as it should be. And look, of course, when you're writing a book like that, you do tend to look at everything through that lens. And I remember baffling my ministerial colleagues in biz when in 2012, with virtually no public debate, the last legal framework for the retirement age was abolished. The retirement in the past, if an employee was aged over 65, an employer could get rid of him or her without having to go through the usual process of unfair dismissal. Um, 
And I, ironically, my party at the time was having lots of public consultations about making the labour market more, more liberal. But actually, on this occasion, there was a sudden massive extension of protections from unfair dismissal to people aged over 65. And I said, well, of course it was bound to happen this year, because this is the year when we had a peak birth rate in 1947, and we've now got a million people <laughs> aged 65 this year. This is the year when it's, the change is bound to be introduced. And they sort of looked at me as, as if I was from a different planet. But So you do tend to see things a bit in that light. However... Uh, there are, it's only it's one. I think it's an important fact. It's only one factor. There's still scope for human agency and other things matter as well. But I just felt this had sub- been too submerged. It was something important. I feel that there's almost a code of your book could be Gramsci. Really, it could be that you know pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. That demography <laughs> is a kind of pessimism of the intellect. That it is powerful. It's more powerful than we might like to imagine. That more of our affairs are governed by these big impersonal forces. But yet we have somehow to try to do the best in these circumstances. Yeah, and and, and I think we can do the best. I mean, first of all, there's that great American bumper sticker: "Be nice to your kids; they choose your nursing home." <laughs> yeah. So there is a kind of prudential argument: we, the baby boomers, we are going to get old. We are going to depend on a publicly financed healthcare system. We are going to depend on social care. If the generations coming on behind us, who are then the bulk of taxpayers, think they've had a bloody rough ride from us, why do we think then they will have feel any sense of obligation to us? There's that kind of argument, and. And as a, a really encouraging straw in the wind, look at the housing debate. There's some very interesting attitude polling because one of the obvious things we can do to help the younger generation is just build more houses. Uh, and, you know, we managed to build 300,000 a year in the 1950s. We now struggle to build 150,000. In 2010, something like 28% of adults said that they would support having more housing in their area. In the five years since, that has doubled to something like 56% of adults saying they support more housing in their area. I think that is evidence of how attitudes change when the penny finally drops. Now, that's fascinating because you're starting to answer my next question, which is uh, to, to ask you to justify your optimism. Because as we said earlier, uh, you know, in the seven years since you published the book, almost all the indicators you described have got worse. You know, we still have a pensions lock, which is meaning more money going to pensioners and that the gap between their incomes and other incomes is continuing uh, to rise. I think what you're going to say is there's a kind of lag effect here that that we public intellectuals, as it were, if I can join your tribe, <laughs> have to go out there. We We are the... You know, we go into the vanguard, we open up these arguments, and then a few years later, finally, pub- the public gets it, the penny drops, to use your phrase, and politicians start to adjust. Is that your view, that, that these arguments will get through? They just takes a bit of time. I, I think they are getting through. And, and, look, and I, having been a democratically elected politician for over 20 years, I know politicians aren't kamikaze pilots. I don't expect politicians heroically to implement policies that nobody would vote for. Politicians move alongside public opinion, sometimes nudging a bit ahead, uh, nudging it forward, other times lagging behind it. But there's a, in a democracy, there's a kind of link between them. And I, I do think that this issue of the fans between the generations is, is increasingly important. I remember uh, the Conservative Party's pollster having a meeting with David Cameron. I wasn't at the meeting, but the pollster told me, told me about it afterwards. And saying to David Cameron, you know, they'd, be, they'd been doing attitudinal polling about the things that people were most 
worried about. And he said, top of the list, people were most worried about, what are the prospects for my children? What are the prospects for the next generation as a whole? And David Cameron said to him, oh, yes, David Willis has written a book about that. <laughs> so the, there's a slow process whereby these things do permeate through, yeah. So there must have been times, and I'm not asking you to give chapter and verse, when you sat in the cabinet and you thought, this isn't the rational policy, this isn't the ethical policy, but I just got to wait for people to, to, to recognise what they need to do. Well, let's, let's give two examples. I mean, first of all, which there's one example you've cited, the pensions triple lock. That was a promise that David Cameron made before the 2010 election and then repeated before the 2015 election. It applies one parliament at a time. Uh, and I'm chairing a commission where this is one of the many issues we're looking at. But I think that we're getting to the point when the the, the politics of repeating the triple lock in the different party manifestos at, say, the 2020 general election, I think that is beginning to shift. Mm. And I think we may well find that that promise is not repeated because people are beginning to worry about other groups who are getting a much tougher deal from the welfare state. And then secondly, and I, I must touch on this, of course, there's the question as to whether what the, what the author of the pinch thinks of the policies of the universities minister and how <laughs> increasing the student fees to £9,000, whether that's consistent with the arguments, because some, obviously people raise that with me. And I would say on that, look, of course, students don't pay it up front. It's not something the younger generation actually pay while they're young. It is a repayment scheme. You pay back at 9% of your earnings above £21,000. So it's not like loading them with a credit card debt or an overdraft. And it did enable us to remove the cap on the number of people going to university, which I think was a great social reform. And you referred to Robert Putnam's book, Our Kids, and the real driver in that book that explains this growing gap in America between people doing better and better and people doing worse and worse was quite simply whether you'd gone to a university or not. And all of his charts show graduates doing OK, but non-graduates falling behind. And part of America's problem is that their graduation rate has barely increased for 10 or 15 years. I think more young people being able to go to university and having a university education where there's a proper amount of resource behind them because it reversed the cuts in the funding for individual students at university but paying back if they are well-paid graduates was actually a good policy for the younger generation and it's one of the reasons why I'm actually a bit more optimistic about long-term social trends in the UK than I'm about the US. In my assumption which was that part of the reason you decided to leave frontline politics and go back into kind of think tankery was that you had enough of having to compromise your sense of what is right and rational with what is politically expedient. It's not, it's not quite as simple as that. No, no. Like, look, I, I really enjoyed be, uh, you know, democratic politics and being in the House of Commons. And I have enormous respect for what people do in that environment. But equally, there are limits to what you can say in fact, David Cameron and the Shadow Cabinet were very tolerant of allowing me to write this book and publish it as a member of the Shadow Cabinet. Looking back, I appreciated the, the freedoms to write the way I did. So, of course, ministers ultimately decide, but you can influence the debate if you help influence public attitudes, which in turn shapes the environment within which politicians are then taking rational decisions about what you can get away with and what you can't. And I hope you can have a constructive influence that way as well. Which brings me to the final question. Throughout this interview, you've radiated that kind of optimism that you have, <laughs> that in the end, if you make the right argument, it will get through. You've talked about public reason. How do you interpret what's going on currently in our kind of public discourse? You know, do you think that 
the pe people's sense of ever-growing kind of disenchantment, the rise of populism, these kinds of things. Is this a blip that we'll come out of? Is it indeed in some way related to the what's going on in terms of demography? What's going on out there, as it were, David, doesn't seem to fit very well with your optimistic and reasonably and rational account of how the world changes. Yeah, and I, and it is a and it is a very worrying, troubling what's happening. And I, I think, and I used to discuss this with David Goodhart, who's written about this. I think the problem is that liberalism has come to mean playing a kind of identity politics um, in which everybody gets. Uh, defined by gender or class or whatever, and or ethnicity or culture, that leads to a kind of fragmentation. You weaken the sense of a common culture or a common discourse or a shared set of values for politics. But the stages of the life cycle are pretty universal. If you're trying to find something that still matters in the world today, but goes deeply into our into human nature. Uh, childhood, uh, maturity, growing old. That's a pretty fundamental human experience. My view is that it does provide a way of thinking of politics and arguing about politics that reaches out across a lot of the boundaries between each other, which we are now creating. And in fact, one of the reasons why I wrote the book and you touched on this earlier, was that, look, my previous book had been a book about conservatism. And I remember my wife saying to me, please really stop writing things with conservatism in the title. She got a bit fed up with it. Um, and she wanted something a bit different. And a lot of conservatism, historically, has taken the form of an appeal to kind of, this is our nation's history, or this is the, what the Church of England stands for, or this is the obligations of the squire has to the people in his community. Those were the kind of foundations on which historically conservatism in Britain rested. And they won't all do in the 21st century. They won't carry the weight that they carried before. And my view is that a political language that says these are the obligations we have to other generations, this is why they're an obligation, this is how we discharge them, we are the beneficiaries of previous generations endowing us with stuff, stuff that was going to last far longer than ever they were. You know, the Victorians didn't put up their buildings in papier-mâché and give them design life of 20 years. They put up buildings for centuries. We are the beneficiaries of previous generations much poorer than us, bequeathed to us. We have a similar obligation to pass on something better to, to future generations. I find that still means something today, and it's an appeal which does transcend most of the conventional barriers. So I think that's one of the reasons why I'm an optimist. I suppose it's just partly my temperament. But I, I do actually think this offers a way ahead of talking about politics in a divergent country. Well, David, thank you very much. I think what I've learned in the last half an hour or so is that this isn't just a book of analysis and policy. Actually, it is also a kind of progressive political strategy. I mean, albeit a right of centre, but there is a progressive political strategy running through this. It's been fascinating to hear you talk about it. You, you mentioned there's going to be the pinch too, is that right? I've just finished writing a book about universities, which will appear towards the end of the year, but I'm now turning my mind to, to doing a second edition of the pinch, yes, drawing on all the research that's been conducted since the book first came out in 2010. So I won't tell the listeners to buy The Pinch. I'll tell them to pre-order <laughs> Pinch 2. This time it's personal. Uh, David Willits, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast has been an RSA and Resonance production. To receive future podcasts from the RSA, make sure to subscribe. 
In other programmes, I talk with Jeff Mulgan, Chief Executive of Nesta, about his 1997 book, Connexity, which explored the implications of the increasingly connected and networked world, and also to Kate Pickett, co-author of The Spirit Level, a book that argues that more equal societies are also societies which are healthier and more functional. To hear any of those programmes or find out more about the work of the RSA, please visit our website.